The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The Gospel of the Lord. Pray with me, please. Lord, we can do nothing without you. Even praying. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Lord, I pray for hearts that are open to hear what you have to say today through your Spirit. Lord, that we might grow more into your likeness to bring you glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today we're going to complete the series that we started eight weeks ago. It's a series that we started on the fruit of the Spirit. We find the very character of God listed in Paul's writing to the Galatians in chapter 5. The very manifestation of the Spirit that God wants to manifest and cultivate in our lives. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. And today we're going to conclude with self-control. We have called this series the Garden Principle because it's a principle that we get out of Isaiah chapter 51 verse 3 that we have a way of looking at life that's different than the way that God looks at life. We have a way of looking at life and seeing especially the negative things in life like nothing good can come from those things. We can even call them a wasteland. But God in Isaiah 51 verse 3 sees things totally differently. He sees what we consider a wasteland as to be a garden, a garden of the Lord. And the premise of this series is that God takes us and he places us and he plants us in a garden. And he speaks a word to us and the way that we respond to that word in the midst of that moment shapes our character and it shapes our destiny. So today, we're going to consider the fruit of the Spirit, the supernatural fruit of the Spirit, not the counterfeit. Each one of these characteristics has a counterfeit that we are uh, given to believe that it's the real thing and that we might believe the lie. But today, we're going to consider the supernatural characteristic of self-control. And I want to begin by considering what the Proverbs say. Actually, Proverbs 25, verse 28, speaks right into self-control. It says that a man who lacks self-control is like a city whose walls are broken down. Do you get this picture? It's this picture of a city that's fortified by a wall, think maybe two, 3,000 years ago. And there's a breach in the wall 
and, and what happens when there's a breach in a wall that the city is now defenseless, it's vulnerable, it, it, it's helpless. And what the proverb is actually saying is not talking about a city, but it's talking about you and me. It's describing us when we lose self-control. Listen again. The man who lacks self-control is like a city whose walls are broken down. When we lose our self-control, we become like that. We become vulnerable. We become helpless. And it goes like this, that any destructive thought or any fleeting whim can, can storm the city of our souls and, and, and leaves us defeated and hold, holds us captive and under the potential to live for God, undermines the potential to live for God. So what is self-control? Where do we get self-control? Where does it come from? Again, we've been considering every characteristic, this supernatural characteristic, this, this fruit of the Spirit, this character of God. We've been considering where it's being cultivated. So where does self-control come from? Well, in order to first con- to understand self-control, we've got to first realize what self-control doesn't come from. You see, self-control doesn't come from a behavior modification program. What do I mean? Well, it's not a regimen of, of duly developed disciplines where we just pull ourselves up by the spiritual bootstraps and we just try to be the best that we can be to control ourselves. That's the counterfeit. But that's what a lot of us believe self-control is. But the Bible, the Bible describes it totally differently. It's a supernatural characteristic of the Holy Spirit It's not the fruit of our own effort, self-control. I mean, it's really kind of a contradiction in terms, isn't it? If you just think about it, self-control. Do you hear it? Self-controlling self. Or think about it this way. Who gets us in the most trouble in our lives? Right? If you're like me, it is moi. It's self. It's self trying to control self. I mean, I've become my own worst enemy. Not Libby, my wife, not the children, not you. I become my own worst enemy. I'm the one that gets myself in trouble. I had to read, I read a book last night to the children. We had the pleasure of keeping them this weekend. So if I stumble a little bit, you'll know why, because we had the pleasure of keeping the three children this weekend. But I was reading last night, Curious George, you know, the little monkey. Well, the little monkey always gets himself in trouble. And I thought, wow, what a perfect illustration for self-control. I don't even have the guy in the yellow hat coming to bail me out. I mean... Self-control sounds like the fox is already in the hen house. But the fact is, that's not what the Bible means by self-control. No, self-control thought about that way is to counterfeit. And what a lot of us believe, that is to be self-control. But that's the substitute that we're given to believe, that the world offers up, the world of flesh and the devil. And there's nothing more than a manufacturer of the flesh 
human effort trying to do the thing that only God can do in us. So what is self-control? The supernatural characteristic. That's not self-controlling self, which is the counterfeit. What is it? Well, let me first say this with the counterfeit. Self-controlling self that we tend to kind of get ourselves in trouble, kind of like Curious George. If you've been going to the Lenten study, you know we've been considering the the suffering and the sacrifices of Jesus. And this Sunday, we, we heard something about this, or last Wednesday. It comes from Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Listen to this about the self. Jeremiah writes, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all the scriptures God breathed. Jeremiah writes that the heart is deceitful above all things, and the heart is desperately corrupt. And then Jeremiah says, who can understand it? Do you hear that? The heart, the self, is deceitful above all things. It's desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? That's why we read in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul picks up on this. Listen, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't understand this. I do what I don't want to do, and and, uh, what I do is what I hate to do. You see, Paul and Jeremiah are speaking about the very same thing. They're talking about the heart. They're talking about self. And they're saying that self, the heart, is desperately corrupt so that we don't even understand ourselves. And this is the counterfeit to self-control. That me, through my own personality, through the sheer force of my will, I can, I, I, I'm, I'm using something that the Bible says is deceitful above all things trying to control something that is desperately corrupt and it's beyond my understanding. It's no wonder we make a mess of things. No wonder we get in so much trouble when we try to be in control. I'm my own worst enemy. The biblical picture of self-control is radically different. It's not self-controlling self. But the supernatural characteristic that God wants to cultivate in you and me is God-controlled self. God-controlled self. And it's the only way that self can come under control. When we yield our lives to God, when we give up the reins of, of control in our lives, a lot like gentleness last week, when we put on the yoke of Christ's authority, And we come under his control. Now for nine weeks, each week we've considered this principle, this garden principle. That God speaks a word to us and the way that we respond to that word shapes our character and shapes our destiny. And he calls us to trust him regardless of what we might think is a wilderness. So that he can produce the supernatural characteristic of Christ in us. So what's the garden? What is it that we consider to be a wilderness? And God says, no, you know what? That's a garden. Well, I'm going to look over at Hebrews in chapter 5 because we're going to hear it described. Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says. 
talking about Jesus. Verse 8. Although he was his son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Do you hear that? Verse 8. Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. And we say this every week. What did he suffer? We know that he was, he was despised. We know that he was reviled. We know that he was rejected. We know that he suffered upon the cross. But what about beyond that? What about beyond the cross? What's the one place that Jesus suffered more than any other place? Again, we talked about this Wednesday night. It's temptation. Temptation. That's where Jesus suffered more than anything else. The same place that you and I suffer. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying this, that it's in the place that Jesus suffered that he grew in his capacity to obey, to live a life yielded to God, his loving control, to the will of his Father. That's where he learned obedience. Not some selfish whim or self-serving ambition, which Jesus it could have risen up in Jesus. But he learned obedience through the suffering. So, the writer to Hebrews also says this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one, talking about Jesus again, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Do you hear that? Jesus was tempted in every way, just as you and me, you and I are tempted. But he was without sin. What is temptation? Again, temptation is the opportunity that presents itself. It's an enticement to disobey God. And temptation can come from within or it can come from outside. It can come from our own desires or it can be something stepping in, making an appeal to desire within us. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, is that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but he was without sin. Now think about it. You know what that means? That means that Jesus was more acquainted with temptation than we are. You think, well, wait a minute. No, that's not true. I'm more acquainted with temptation than Jesus is. No, we are more acquainted with sin than Jesus is. We're more acquainted with yielding to temptation, but not the full experience of temptations. I mean, in other words, I know my temptations, and I know them quickly because I'm so quick to give in to them. I don't stay long with my temptations because I give in to them. But Jesus knew them over the whole course. He knew temptation all the way to the end. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. 
He was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. And because of that, he suffered in every temptation. In other words, temptation to Jesus was real. It appealed to some level of desire in him. If there's no desire, there's no temptation. And don't we know that to be true? I mean, I promise you, you put a plate of liver and onions in front of me, there's going to be no temptation because there's no desire to chow into that. But you put that hot fudge sundae in front of me with that fudge and that chocolate and that whipped cream and that cherry, a lot of temptation because it's great desire. And when there's desire, there's genuine temptation. And with that, there's struggle and there's agony. So Jesus, if he suffered temptation, there were things in his life that made an appeal to a genuine desire in his life. But Jesus said no every single time. You probably have already guessed the garden that God places us in to cultivate his supernatural characteristic of self-control is the garden of temptation. Temptation. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. It sounds like I'm saying God tempts us. But we know in Scripture, in James chapter 1, that he doesn't tempt anyone. But we are tempted when we are lured, when we're enticed by our own desires. And the point is, is that God takes those moments that might seem like a wilderness to us. Those struggles and, and those, the, the agony and the temptation. And he transforms it into a garden to cultivate the fruit of his spirit. Self-control. That place that we think nothing good can come from that. And he says, trust me. See if I can't use that. We heard today in the first reading that Jay read out of 2 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what Peter writes again in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, you will, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and he's blind. And he has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Do you hear that? Do you see this progression? It all starts with faith. What is faith? Faith is trusting in God. Believing it the way he says it. Because that's where any relationship with him must begin. It's got to be. Again, with believing and trusting in Him, with our humbly falling on our knees, trusting in Him. But He doesn't leave us there. He wants us to grow, 
to change us. He wants to transform us. He wants to cultivate our character. So we see in Peter's writing a progression that we go from knowledge to self-control. In other words, we've got to have self-control to have it. Something's got to precede it. And what Peter is saying, what must precede self-control to have it is knowledge. He said, well, knowledge of what? I mean, go back to school, go back to college. I say, no, that's where I lost (laughs) self-control. No, we need to have knowledge. Knowledge of the most important thing that we'll ever know. Peter said it again. Let me read it again. Verses 8 and 9. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, and he has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. What's the knowledge? What's the knowledge that we're to have before we can add self-control? It's the knowledge that we're forgiven. That's the knowledge that we are forgiven. The Bible says that God removes our sins as far as east is from west. That's forgiveness. The Bible says that God remembers our sins no longer. That's forgiveness. And if he doesn't remember them, it's as if they didn't even happen. They, the, the slate is wiped clean, cleansed of past sins. We're to add that knowledge to self-control. Or put another way, before we can have self-control, we've got to let our understanding of being forgiven take a prominent place in our in our lives and do you know do you realize that God's forgiveness is his way of saying I love you the most important words that we can hear his forgiveness is his way of saying I love you I love you I love you. This is what Jesus said in John 15. He said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And what he's saying, this is the greatest expression of, of love, and it's on the cross that we've obtained forgiveness. And we see the greatest expression of God's love for us. It wasn't failure on the cross. But he was obedient unto death. And through his suffering and agony, we're loved. I love you. I love you. I love you. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 37, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, we are more than overcomers through him who loved us. Talking about the love of Christ. The ability to overcome, to have self-control, to overcome temptation, those moments of enticement to disobey God comes from knowing that we are loved. 
And we are loved deeply. God cultivates self-control in the garden of temptation because of what he can do in us through it. If we just take him at his word, and it's in this wilderness that we think nothing good can come from it, that God says there's a garden that we must resolve to remember the word spoken to us, God loves me. He loves me. I mean, that's the testimony of children, isn't it? The struggles of children. We've all raised children. I have my three grandchildren with me this weekend. But you talk with children that are struggling. They're not doing what their parents want them to do. They're not even doing what probably they want to do. And you talk with the children and you say, well, tell me about your relationship with your parents. And you know what the answer is? They don't care for me. They don't love me. They don't have time for me. They don't show up in my life. They don't love me. And to a child, to a teenager, if that thought takes root, if it's true or not, it exposes them to extraordinary levels of temptation to negative peer groups, to destructive behavior patterns. And it undermines the very capacity to live a godly life. And friends, it's true for you and for me. I mean, we're just adults with wrinkles, our children with wrinkles. And we struggle with those childhood struggles. And when we don't know that we're loved by God, that He cares for us, we lose the very reason to exercise self-control because we think He doesn't care. He doesn't love me. Again, consider what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 37. We are more than conquerors through Him who what? Who gave me a list of rules to follow? Who tells him what I ought or should do? No. Paul says that we are more than conquerors. We are more than overcomers through him who loves us. And friends, when we think about temptation, that's probably the last thing that we think of when we're struggling, when we're in agony, is how much we're loved by God. You see, when we're in the midst of temptation, we we tend to think of the opportunity. We tend to think, well, God said, don't do this, that he's some kind of cosmic killjoy, that he just wants to rob my fun. We tend to think, well, I can do this. I can handle this. I can control this. And it's as if we just cut the light off so that we don't have to see God, so that we can go about doing what we're going to do. Isn't that what happened in the garden? Adam and Eve, they hid from God so they can do what they're going to do. And the enemy of our souls wants us to think that God is holding out, that he really doesn't love us. Again, Genesis 3, did God tell you really 
not to eat from the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah. Oh, no. He knows that you're going to become like him if you do that. He's holding out on you, Adam. He's holding out on you, Eve. And you know what makes that lie so believable? Often God's very best is hidden in life's worst moments. Let me say that again. Oftentimes his very best is hidden in life's worst moments. Look upon the cross. Satan would have us to believe, oh, the Messiah died. Look at him hanging upon the cross. And God uses that for good. You see, if we only look at the externals of life, we get so easily fooled. Rather than remembering at that moment that God is always giving us the best. We can look upon the cross and see Jesus upon the cross and we never get beyond Good Friday. We look beyond the externals and we look at life eternally. You see, Satan wants us to look at life only from the external perspective. To see it as the worst. To see the prohibition. God said, don't do this. Did he really? To believe that God's not on our side in the moment of that temptation. And that's the voice that we so often hear. We get it confused. We say, well, God doesn't really care what I do. He doesn't really love me. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what's unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Saying the very same thing. We, we look beyond emotions. We look beyond circumstances as followers of Christ. And we look to God who stands in the midst of them and says, I love you. I love you. I love you. That's faith. Especially in the garden of temptation. That we turn our faith to the reality of the love of God. And faith is seeing it the way that God says it. Not believing it the way that we see it. And he says in the midst of the garden of temptation, I love you. With an everlasting love, I love you. When we are struggling with temptation, when we see it the way that he says that I love you, we look at what's, at, what's eternal. We look not at the circumstance and we believe that God has always given us his best because we trust him. Today we're concluding this series. And you have probably figured out, and we've said it every week, that the garden and the wilderness are the same life experience. And it's in that experience, it's trusting God 
to be God, that he transforms us. It's in the midst of that, that we trust him at his word. It was in the very beginning that God took man and woman and he placed them in the garden and he spoke a word to them. And the way that they responded to that word shaped their character. And it shaped their destiny. It did then. And it does today. Friends, God loves, he yearns to see character grown in us. To not be satisfied with the counterfeit Christianity that's dished out to us today. That's not why Jesus came. That's not what he came to give. But he radically wants to change us. So that we meet life. With the character of Christ. With the fruit of the Spirit. With love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. As we conclude today, don't be satisfied with the counterfeits. Because you see, the world is standing on its tiptoes and wants to know, is it real? Is it true? Can God really change a person? This is what the world desperately needs to, to see, that it is real. That it is true. As we allow God to transform us, as we trust him, and we remember that he loves us, to God be the glory. Let us pray. Lord, all we can say is thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the forgiveness offered through the pain and the agony of your son who took on our sins. But thank you, Lord, that we see now with eyes of faith that he's no longer on that cross. But he is risen because he loves us. Help us to understand the depth of his love, Lord. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.